Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 7th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Energy and gas prices are very high uh, and they're likely to... Uh, rise more uh, in the months ahead before they level off and start falling again. The Thonisha, Leo Bradker outlining the challenges uh, that we all face into this winter and telling the doll yesterday what the government is doing to help us. We did have a budget uh, here only last week. Uh, that gives every household, including households that use pay-as-you-go meters, uh, 600 euros in energy credits um, over the course of the winter. Uh, and because a lot of uh, people who use pay-as-you-go meters are on social welfare or are uh, low-income families, they will benefit from the double social welfare payment, for example, the double child, child benefit payment, uh, and also uh, measures like the 500 euros um, uh, for, uh, bonus for people receiving the working family payment. All of that will arrive in people's pockets. Um, more money in their pockets before Christmas. Now, that is a lot of help, but is it enough? A lot of help is on the way. Uh, as the year Sarai pointed out uh, in its analysis, um, the least well-off 30% of people uh, will be fully protected uh, from the rise in the cost of living at least until the end of the winter. Uh, and for that reason, the vast majority of people should and will be able to manage their bills uh, over the next few months. The vast majority of people expected to cope, Leo Vratker says, but helping the vast majority is not the same thing as helping everyone. I acknowledge that there will be some hardship cases. Uh, there always are. Uh, and for that reason, we need to help. Uh, for people who are on bill pay, uh, the moratorium and disconnections uh, runs until the end of February for vulnerable co- customers until the end of March. And for people using pay-as-you-go meters, as you understand and as I understand, uh, that's a much more complicated system uh, because of the way it, way it operates. Uh, however, um, the credit that people have, the overdraft that they have is now extended to 20 euros, so people can run over the meter uh, by up to 20 euros um, uh, without uh, facing the risk of disconnection. Um, and in addition to that, having spoken to some people who are on pay-as-you-go meters, uh, it's already the case uh, that, um, at least in a lot of cases, 
uh, that you can't be disconnected, for example, at a weekend uh, so that people have the time uh, to top up. Tonsha Leo Bradker. Now, the Bishops of Ireland held uh, their autumn general meeting in St. Patrick's College in Maynooth this week. In a statement published afterwards, the bishops say... A combination of economic pressures have resulted in an unacceptable level of social deprivation and hardship, which, if not dealt with equitably by those who have public responsibility, will threaten social cohesion and undermine the common good. All of us, public representatives, parishioners and local church leaders, the bishops say, have a duty to come together in solidarity with those who are suffering to show our concern in practical ways. The bishops say that Catholics also have a responsibility to continue to lobby those in authority to ensure that their policies and actions do not widen the gap between the rich and the poor, leaving poor people further behind. Now let's speak to the Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Armagh, Bishop Michael Reuter, who is also the Chair of the Bishop's Council for Healthcare. Good morning to you, Bishop Reuter, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There's obviously a lot of upset with amongst the bishops about the budget decisions. You say that the budget does not deal with the underlying growth in the levels of poverty in society and the increasing gap between the rich and the poor. Yeah, we, we had a meeting this week in, in Maynooth, uh, two-day meeting of the, the autumn meeting of the bishops' conference, and it was one of the the major issues that was discussed at the meeting is the cost of living crisis that is affecting everybody across the board uh, in the country at the moment, but is particularly affecting those who um, are on social welfare, those who are in the la- lower wage category. Um, I think the, the, the central bank, you know, released figures there on Wednesday that there was about 180,000 families, about 14% of all households uh, in the country who have no disposable income whatsoever, uh, that they are struggling each month uh, just to pay the basic essential uh, bills. And uh, we feel that really that they should be targeted, that that, that cohort of people, of families should be targeted uh, in a, a, with measures that will, will help them on a, on a permanent long-term basis. Like we welcome, we welcome the measures that were taken in the budget. Uh, we welcome the help that is being given in terms of double social welfare payments uh, mm. And also some of the measures, for, for uh, with, with respect, uh, I think what you're saying is you, you, you welcome some of the measures, uh, but you're yeah. not happy with the budget because it doesn't deal with the underlying growth in the levels of poverty. It doesn't. Uh, you know, I mean, that is the case year in, year out. Uh, there is no long term strategy to deal with the, the problem. You're criticising government in your statement uh, because in your statement you're saying that the government is increasing the gap between the rich and the poor. Well, Social Justice Ireland in its response to the uh, budget uh, indicated that the gap will increase by €199 Euro in the, the year ahead because of this budget. It seems small, but that's happening. There's an incremental widening of the gap year in, year out. Mm. You're, not, and, you're, you're you asking know, Catholics to lobby politicians. Yes, you know, to, 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 to I think anybody, we're, we're asking everybody to, to really reflect on this issue, how we can tackle uh, poverty in, in the country. 
uh, and do something worthwhile that's going to actually make a difference so that that gap, uh, which is dysfunctional in our society, really, the gap between rich and poor is narrowed. Mm. Uh, and we don't think that they, like a lot of the very welcome um, sort of initiatives have taken in the budget, they're, they're granted, there's no problem with them particularly, but they're not really addressing the underlying issue. Okay, but and this is that. politics, Bishop, is it not? I mean, this is uh, what people voted for. They knew what they would get when they voted this administration in. A lot of people would consider it to be a, a, a right-wing administration with right-wing policies favouring those uh, who are on higher incomes. Yeah, but just because the government might be considered right-wing doesn't mean that it doesn't have a social conscience, you know, and that it, it doesn't... Uh, have a social contract with the people that it governs. I mean, government is is for the people. Uh, it, it is meant to be there to help those who are the weakest and the most vulnerable in society. So we have to constantly remind those well, governments. Different governments have different political ethoses uh, and people vote based on uh, the political ethos of uh, the politi- political parties. Um, uh, uh, and the bishops of Ireland ha- have made a very political statement uh, uh, on the budget, it would seem to me. Uh, is that breaching uh, the line uh, that people would expect in terms of uh, the separation between church and state? No, absolutely not. I mean... Uh, Catholic Catholic social teaching is 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 very strong on on the dignity of all human beings and on solidarity that that, that we we try to do our best uh, to help those who who are struggling. Uh, I mean that that's an essential part of of Christian teaching. Okay, and, uh, we we have to try and to, to to get that message out there to lobby people who have the power uh, to make a difference to make change. Uh, in our country that will benefit all families mm. so that all boats will rise in a sense. But am I right uh, in, in thinking that what you're saying is uh, the government is failing to deliver that social dividend and you're asking people, uh, members of your church specifically and others, uh, to lobby members of the government and try to uh, convince them of the error of their ways? Yeah, well, I, I think to 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 see that that some of the policies that we have adopted in this country over the past maybe ten or fifteen, twenty years or whatever are just not working. You know, uh, the trickle down economics. Uh, I think everyone around the world is beginning to realise that that doesn't work. You know, you you give the the wealthy more money, you feel that that's going to come down to the rest of the economy and to benefit everybody, but that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. So I, I think politicians... That's the Fine Gael ethos, isn't it? Um, well, I, I, I'm not here to <laughs> say what, what <laughs> I, the ethos I, of a political I party think, is. I, That's up to them. I, I think your statement um, has said it, and what you just said a second ago about the last 10, 15 years relates uh, predominantly to two political parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Well, that's, you know, I mean, I think it, the, the predominant... Uh, sort of ethos in this country over the past maybe 15, 20 years might be a bit too specific, but really in the past maybe 30 or 40 years, you know, has been, uh, you know, to to uh, be totally uh, focused on the, the, um, the, the market forces, you know, and not so focused necessarily on those who are the weakest in society, those who, who struggle, uh, to survive, 
uh, and trying to to give them the uh, equitable treatment that will will help them to fulfil uh, their God-given abilities. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's really what, what it's all about, is, is, is giving everyone an equal chance mm. uh, to, to reach the... the, the, the uh, the potential that they have. Now, are, were you disappointed there to hear that statement on behalf of uh, the government that they're going to help the vast majority of people but recognise that some will be left behind? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's really... I don't... I, personally, I don't think that's acceptable, you know. We shouldn't be leaving people behind. We should be focusing on those who, for one reason or another, are, are, are left behind by society, you know, and... Uh, but that is, that's my opinion. That's, that's my personal opinion on that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's the job of government uh, to reach out to and help those who, who are the most vulnerable. OK, well, thank you indeed for sharing your opinion with us. It's much appreciated and we thank you for joining us on the programme today. That's Bishop Michael Reuter, who is uh, the Dundalk-based Auxiliary Bishop of uh, the Archdiocese of Armagh and Chairperson of uh, the Bishop's Council for Healthcare. Now, uh, it's a, a peculiar position um, for the bishops uh, to take uh, such a, a strong position and uh, uh, an overtly uh, political uh, statement uh, because it relates specifically to the budget which says that the budget does not deal with the underlying growth in the levels of poverty in society and that the budget will go to increasing the gap between rich and poor. Uh, I'm not sure what you make of that if it comes as a surprise to you but uh, I think it's some time since uh, we've heard the bishops intervene in political decisions that are being made in this country. Perhaps It's a welcome move. Uh, Perhaps you feel that uh, the church should not interfere with how uh, the politicians are running the state. Uh, It's an age-old conversation in some ways, but becomes a very new one today. Do let us know what you think, if you care to share your thoughts with us. Now, there's a a lot of people have been thinking about some local boys, some local young men from County Mead in particular this week uh, and indeed the family of Rory Mason uh, who was killed fighting in Ukraine uh, Rory of course from Dulik. There's a, another young man uh, who has spent time in Ukraine uh, and that's Brian Marr who has been very seriously injured uh, but has survived and is making his way home at least uh, that will happen in time to Ashburn uh, and uh, both men uh, were spoken about in the doll yesterday. We'll hear a, a little bit now uh, uh, from the Minister for Foreign Affairs and what he had to say about uh, the situation of getting uh, deceased Rory Mason back so that he can be buried in this country and injured Brian Marr back to County Meath uh, to his family. Can I just maybe update the House because I know there's been some questions asked on media this morning in relation to, to both uh, the remains of, of Rory Mason uh, uh, and also um, Brian Marr, who was, who was interviewed on Morning Ireland this morning. Um, um, and just on that, our consular teams and our team in, in the embassy in Kyiv are working with the Iranian authorities to ensure, of course, that, that Rory Mason's remains um, are, um, are brought home uh, to his family uh, as soon as possible. Uh, and then separately... Uh, we are involved in a in a European medivac, effe- effectively, uh, for uh, for uh, for injured EU citizens uh, to bring them out of Kiev um, to get them home. 
um, uh, and, um, and and we're working with um, with Brian Maher in relation in relation to that, and hopefully that'll happen in the next day or so. Um, so just to to, uh, uh, to clarify that, because there's been some some discussion um, this morning in the media in relation to it. There's no actual crossover between the two issues. Actually, um, one is very much about repatriation uh, of the remains of uh, of of a young man, uh, and then the other is very much a, a medivac system, which is two 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 very separate uh, uh, procedures. Simon Coveney, Minister for Foreign Affairs, speaking about uh, repatriating uh, the remains of Rory Mason to Dulic and how. Uh, Brian Marr uh, will return after being injured in Ukraine to Ashburn. Now, uh, some people in touch with us already. Great to be getting comments so early in the morning. Thank you if you are one of uh, the people who has taken the time to text us. Uh, we've uh, a text coming to us uh, on WhatsApp from somebody who says, it just shows how out of touch Leo Vratker is. He says people will be able to pay their bills when the summer comes. What planet does this man live on? People were struggling to pay their rent, to pay their bills before the energy crisis and there's been many crises before the energy crisis like the recession that covered uh, uh, here and uh, we're struggling now with energy prices. I'll give credit where it's due though. Finnegale got people back into jobs but jobs don't always help people to meet the living standards. Thank you indeed for that. Uh, Jim Navin says, why do decent people have to close their pubs or their shops or so on when a certain thug element come to the area for funerals, weddings, etc. Despite these idiots, idiots always complaining about not being treated equally. If they can't be civilised like the majority of people, then they should keep their mouths shut. Law is too lenient as well. A hefty fine and a prison sentence will put manners on them. Thank you indeed, Jim. I think we all know why you're making that comment and we will be discussing that. Uh, I think quite transparently a little bit later on the programme. Paddy Duffy says, the vast majority of our people cannot afford one more day of Finnegale and government over 11 years. They prepared the groundwork for the problems that we have now in housing, in health, in education and so on. They just can't help themselves. It's in their DNA, Paddy says. The market will provide, well, it won't, Paddy says, and it hasn't. The only thing that the market will provide is for itself. The market does not do altruism. It's only raison d'entrée is profit. I think that's uh, French, is it? I don't know. But it's the only reason for its purpose is profit, says Paddy Duffy. Thank you indeed, uh, Paddy, uh, as always, for your, your message to the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, new legislation is uh, to come into uh, law uh, this month, uh, which will allow Gardaí to show photographs of convicted sex offenders in specific situations uh, to certain people like school principals. Let's uh, speak uh, to Liam Herrick, Executive uh, Director of uh, the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. Good morning to you, Liam. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Michael. What do you make of that? Well, this legislation has been developed for a while. Um, th- there's a, a bill before the Oireachtas at the moment called the Se- Sex Offenders Amendment Bill, which looks to review the sex offender register system which is in place since 2001 and to strengthen it. So there's a number of very practical steps in there about tightening up the reporting uh, restrictions by which certain categorised offenders have to report to guard stations, giving the guards more power to require fingerprints from people on the list and so on. And they're, they're practical and sensible measures. Um, they basically are born out of the experience of the last 20 years of having the sex offenders register to try to make it more effective. And 
to make sure that it's not possible for people who are considered to pose a certain risk to avoid the rules that are in place. What has happened, I suppose, this week is the Minister for Justice has indicated that she wants to add some additional provisions to the legislation at at a late stage in the process um, relating to giving the guards a statutory power to share certain information with certain third parties. Now, I think it's important to recognise that there is a very small number of individuals who have been convicted of serious sexual offences and are considered to pose a certain risk on an ongoing basis. And the guards and the probation service dedicate significant resources to monitoring and supervising these small number of people in the community. And at present, that system works broadly well, although I think both the guards and the probation service would both say that they'd like more resources to do it. Um, But what would typically happen at the moment before there's any change in the law is that in in the rare occasion when the guards for example are particularly concerned that an individual might pose a risk they might contact people in contact with that person like a school in the neighborhood so it already happens and if we're talking about putting that on a statutory basis i think that's a positive thing but what we need to be careful about and i suppose this is where we need to see the detail of what the minister is going to bring forward is we need to make sure we don't go into a position where we take the central power away from the guards and the probation service and we create a situation where members of the public are accessing sensitive information because that could damage the work of the probation service and it could have negative consequences. So I I think the approach we have at the moment is pretty sound and if we can strengthen it, great, but we need to be careful we don't do what some jurisdictions like in the United States have done and create a situation where information about offenders is shared more widely that can have very dangerous effects for the community or for the offender or their family and I don't think that's the direction we want to go in here. Mm. It could lead to vigilanteism, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, sadly, that is what has happened in in, in some countries. I mean, there have been pushes, particularly in the United States, that information about the location of certain offenders could become available to members of the community on request. What that has happened, it's endangered members of the community. It's meant that uh, offenders and their families could be targeted by vigilantism. It's also meant that sometimes completely innocent people can be mistakenly identified. And, and the bottom line, I think, here, Michael, is that the supervision of offenders in the community is a very serious task that is carried out by highly trained, skilled individuals in the probation service and the guards. And we, we have to support them in doing that work. And we shouldn't put other people in that position. Now, if the guards feel it's necessary to speak with a school principal, for example, and say, look, there's this particular risk just at the moment. We're on top of it, but we think it's appropriate that you know about this. I think that's a very sensible thing to do. And school principals are responsible public officials who will use that information appropriately. But if we start getting into a territory where that information is shared more widely, all of the risks um, that I'm talking about could occur. So it's really a question of getting the balance right here. And I think we'll monitor carefully what language the the minister brings forward in the next couple of weeks. Okay. what about a, a teacher? Well, Again, it, it, may, it may very well be appropriate, but I, I mm. think... It may not be. Are, I mean, it seems to be very dangerous territory. I mean, we are talking about people who have been convicted of terrible crimes, but they've done their time. Uh, they've been sentenced uh, and justice has been administered. Uh, and like anybody else uh, who comes out of prison or whatever uh, the sentence was, they're entitled to start again, are they not? 
Well, you see, we, we have decided as a matter of policy and in our law that for a certain category of offenders, even post-release, there's some level of supervision in the community. We've made that decision by having a sex offender register system. And I think it, it's, it's a sensible mm. decision that there is a small number of people that might pose a risk. But it's, the police, then, it's uh, the police force who supervise it, though, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, not school principal yeah, and, and teachers. And, and I mean, that, that, that is what we need to keep central here. But I think mm. the, the scenario that we're talking about is where the guards are monitoring an individual and they believe for whatever reason, it might be just after their release, for example, that they might believe that this is in... This this individual is in a high risk, a high category of risk, that we are intensively monitoring them. But as a precautionary measure, we're going to um, share some information with a selected number of individuals, mm. such as a school principal. Now, as long as the guards and the probation service are in control of that process, as long as it's set out in law, what the threshold of risk is. So what are the circumstances in which that might be appropriate? And it should be very tightly regulated. I think it makes sense. The, the difficulty is... Yeah. Can we ensure that that sensitive information is controlled carefully and not shared inappropriately? The minister, for example, yesterday spoke about the scenario in which images of offenders might be shared on social media, and she said she wanted to make sure that couldn't happen. So uh, I suppose it's somewhere in between is where the balance lies, Mm. and it's really about having proper precautions and processes in place. Well, there would have to be a consequence for misusing the information if anybody was to misuse the information and pass it on to somebody else and it ended up on social media or was uh, seen widely uh, across the community uh, if this was to work. But having said that, uh, how is it going to work otherwise? I, I mean, if the guards go to a school principal, let's say, and say uh, they, there's a, a fellow who uh, spent five, ten years in prison, terrible paedophile, and he's outside your school gates every morning taking photographs of the children, we're very worried about it. What's the principal supposed to do with that information? Well, I mean, I think if, if we reach that situation, the guards would already be intervening with an individual yeah. at that point. You but know, that, they'd but, be but that, in but terms but of their release. You're, you're preempting my line of thought. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, is the, ch- is the principle to keep the children inside the school gates or is he to go out and um, tackle this person or whatever? I mean, surely it is the, the job of the guards to stop that kind of thing from happening if they're aware of it. Yeah, I mean, I think we're... we're this would be very helpful to be set out, I suppose, but I think what's more likely to be the case is the guards will say, we're monitoring the person, we believe we have the risk under control. However, if any information comes to your attention, you know, please contact us and we'll follow up with it. And what we're talking here is about public confidence, public safety, public trust. And there can, from time to time, be information shared in communities that an offender is living in the neighbourhood. It can create a lot of fear among parents and other people in the community. What we need to make sure is we have a system where the public can have confidence that our criminal justice agencies are on top of this. And it is, of course, sensible that the, you know, the guards are in the community, that they would engage with other community services. Again, I think we can trust school principals to use information sensitively because they do it all the time. And you have to remember that schools under law already have responsibilities with regard to child protection. They have obligations to report things uh, that, that give them cause con- for concern already. So it's not a massive breach to, to or a massive change in policy to, to talk about cooperation between Angarda Siakana and the education system. I think where it becomes a bit more difficult is if we talk about private entities or private individuals. And there is a suggestion from the Minister that it mightn't just be schools, it might be individuals or creches or or so on as well and and you're talking there about areas which aren't as tightly regulated which mightn't for example have processes for 
dealing with sensitive personal information, you know. So mm. I, I think th- that is where we're in a slightly more dangerous category. I think the intention behind this is very sound, Michael. You know, mm. it's, it's to provide clarity in law for something that's necessary in a very rare set of circumstances. But we just need to think through all of the possible consequences. And, and hopefully the government and the minister will give the Oireachtas enough time to debate this and work it through. And I think that's the danger with these types of provisions. If they're rushed through, you, you miss some unintended consequence. You know? And I think that if, if we do have time and if the Oireachtas Committee has a chance to tease all this through and bring in the relevant experts, such as in particular the probation service, to hear from them, I think we could get this right. Um, what's very clear is the minister doesn't want to do what has happened in the United States, which has had very negative consequences, and, and we support her in that respect. We just need to make sure we get the balance right. Very good. Liam, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I do want to say to uh, families, uh, to homeowners, uh, to small businesses, to farms, uh, the chances of a blackout or prolonged blackout affecting them uh, is very low. Uh, and I think a lot of people um, uh, are engaging in, in, in worrying people uh, about this. We can't rule it out, um, but the risk of having that kind of blackout is very low uh, because if we do enter a red alert scenario, it is the large energy users that come offline first, like the data centres, for example, and they have their own generating capacity. It takes quite a lot of events to come together for us to be in a position where there would have to be a power cut to homes, farms, businesses. Uh, and I think it's important that we reassure people that that's the case. Uh, it didn't happen last winter. Nobody can say it won't happen this winter, um, but I think it is uh, uh, unlikely. Unlikely. That's uh, the Tonish de Leo Radker. Let's speak uh, to Neil MacDonald, CEO of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Good morning, Neil. Thanks, as always, uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Low risk, but it can't be ruled out. Uh, does that do enough to reassure you and your members? Well, look, Michael, of course, we absolutely hope that the Tarnisha is right. Um, nobody wants to see power cuts, but I think the Tarnisha was was honest enough to admit that there does exist a risk. And, and we do know that a lot of the backup generation within the Irish system is old. Its reliability level is low. We understand that, for example, Tarbert Power Plant, power plant which has been you know embedded in the system for a long time is is offline at the moment for repairs so as long as the risk is real we need to be making active uh, contingency plans and and people need to understand what they are we we understand that the uk government is is making plans for rolling uh, three hour uh, blackouts this winter um, we it would be prudent for people to understand how the government is is going to tackle this if it does happen. The Township did hint at some of the methodologies there, which is the large users with their own generation come offline first. Mm. But we don't know what are the other, you know, what else might happen if, for example, um, another fossil plant came offline this winter. Mm. He also corrected himself. Well, I suppose. Uh, that's one interpretation. He, he said he doesn't expect power cuts, and then he said, "Well, prolonged power cuts." Did that worry you? Well, this has been alluded to before that if 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 demand on the grid got to a certain level, then there would be 
a series of relatively short cuts distributed around the system. So one area would would go out for a period and another area would go out for a period. And I think, Michael, you and I are old enough to remember that exact uh, thing happening in the 70s when we had uh, ESB strikes. Mm. So, so that's how they distribute this disruption uh, around the grid. The, the reason we need to know what the plans are to deal with this is, of course, if you're running a hotel or a restaurant or, or a bar or a nursing home, you absolutely have to know when that is going to happen. You need some notice. Yeah. You need to be able to prepare and put contingency plans yeah. in yourself. Or if you're at home on dialysis. Um, I take it people are putting their own contingency plans in place. I read a couple of weeks ago that there's been a surge in the sale of generators. Yes, we, we've heard of small businesses that are investing in in, um, in small uh, generators just to you know just to keep the lights on. Um, unfortunately, o- over the last while, you, there are a lot of houses, for example, now that are exclusively uh, heated by uh, electricity. Now, a small petrol generator is not going to be able to to maintain that type of output. But of course, you know, that is probably the least environmentally friendly way to, to power the grid of all, you know, running small petrol generators um, is exactly the sort of thing we should not be doing. So in the longer term, aside from the plans to get over the winter of 2022, the, the ESB has been honest enough to discuss, you know, to talk about this as a problem that could take five or six years or more to address we also really need to see the plans for for getting over this for the winters to come not just winter 2022 Mm. and uh, I suppose to be looking at uh, 2023 uh, we had the same problem last year as Leo Radker said there but uh, the Tanish saying well we didn't have blackouts last year and all going well Uh, we won't have them this year (laughs) I, I take it you're hoping that all goes well Nobody wants to see that type of disruption. Um, you know, from a business point of view, it's it's extremely disruptive and annoying. From a personal point of view, as you say, you know, people at home after a day's work, and that unfortunately is peak demand time from about 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. People really do not want to see the power going off, and, and potentially, you know, as I said, those uh, homes powered exclusively by electricity, those would then lose their ability to cook, for instance, in the evening. So that's that's potentially really serious for people. We don't want to see it happen, but we do think it's prudent to, to plan for plan B. Okay. Neil, we'll leave there. Thank you, as always, for joining us this morning. Neil MacDonald, CEO of ISME, that's the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as you heard in uh, the headlines, uh, Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, is optimistic about a resolution being found to the Northern Ireland Protocol with uh, the British government. uh, And there's a lot going on. Uh, The minister met with his counterpart, James Cleverly, in London last night. He's meeting uh, with uh, the Northern Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, at uh, the British-Irish Intergovernmental 
Intergovernmental Conference today. Uh, and indeed, uh, the Taoiseach Michal Martin is in Prague uh, with uh, all of uh, the European leaders and 17 other leaders. Uh, and he's been speaking with the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and he's saying there's good faith on both sides. Let's speak uh, to the Minister for European Affairs, Finnfall TD, for me, these Thomas Byrne. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Are, are you equally optimistic? Well, you know me, Michael, I'm always optimistic. Um, I think at the end of the day, there's an agreement here uh, that everybody's signed, uh, and the idea is to get that agreement uh, into operation, which, which it is already, but in a, in a way that can allay the concerns that particularly unionists have expressed. Um, and we're now entering a phase where the new government in Britain, they have clearly reached out warmly to all of us. I had good conversation with my own counterpart, Minister Leo Doherty, yesterday, um, and it's happening at all levels. Uh, now, I suppose the, the key point now is that uh, the issues surrounding the Northern Ireland Protocol are highly technical in nature, and the issues uh, to resolve them and the way to resolve them will, will be technical solutions. And that then requires our officials um, at EU level and UK level uh, to discuss all of those issues uh, and to achieve technical solutions. And the only way we can do that is if the officials are mandated by uh, the respective uh, governments. And um, the last time I felt, this time last year, there was, a, there was a good atmosphere, but quite frankly, at the technical level, things didn't progress very fast. Um, and quite frankly, very little was happening at the, at the official level. Uh, and that's what we need to change this time. So we, we'll soon find out. Um, but at least this week already, the EU side and the UK side uh, have been in touch, have been in contact with timetabling about discussing some preliminary issues. That'll be done between the EU and the UK. The governments will be kept informed as to what's going on, um, but it won't be blow by blow. Um, and I think, you know, as the Taoiseach said himself, we need to give space now for this to happen. Uh, but I think we, we'll know very, very quickly uh, how things are going. OK, but I, I take it nothing really has changed in that the issues are the same issues that were there before. The technical solutions, if you like, are the same technical solutions that were there before. The only thing that has changed is the attitude of the British government. What do you think is the motivation for that? Well, I don't know. I mean, look, I mean, we've, we've, we've had warm relations with them at various points. I mean, the problem was that the relationship hasn't been deep enough over the last uh, number of years. It's been quite warm. I mean, every time we meet counterparts, I mean, it's very friendly. Um, but it needs to be deeper, and that's what we really hope happens this time and what we're certainly at this side working towards. Um, so we haven't had technical talks at official level in quite some time. They're now starting now again. Um, so that, that is a change. I think we're I think we're now in a new reality with this war in Ukraine, um, huge dependency on each other. I think that's recognised. Liz Truss has gone to the European political community. Even six weeks ago, this has been dismissed um, by the British side as a possibility. It's not clear would would Boris Johnson have gone to this meeting, very important meeting where leaders can get together. I think COVID as well didn't help because people weren't meeting each other as much. Now you see already. Um, two weeks ago, Liz Truss would have met Ursula von der Leyen at the, at the United Nations again this week. There's just more opportunities to meet. I think that helps. Uh, so we're out of that phase when people are doing telephone calls or, or video links. And I think that's, I hope that's really going to be helpful. Um, and the same on our side too. So, so, so I think that is a big change actually. Mm. Uh, and could give us more scope to, to get progress. But as I said... But, but there has been uh, a change of attitude. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and there's uh, no 
denying it. Uh, I mean, there's even been that uh, apology, that now infamous uh, apology from Steve Baker. Yeah, and we welcome that. And I've, you know, we've I've had good interaction with Steve Baker, and you know, we've I've gone on British media myself this week and BBC, and you know, welcomed that, but also spoke. I tried to speak as warmly as I can as well about about um, the British, and also to recognise as well that I think it's important for them. Um, the the genuine concerns that unionists have. So there's no question we are in a different space um, and, and we want to take advantage of that, not for ourselves, not for the EU, but really for the people of Northern Ireland. That's, mm. that's where we want the results from. Okay, it's a, a new Prime Minister, new government, new cabinet um, who has had a, a rude awakening. Uh, do you think uh, that uh, they've been left shell-shocked uh, by the reaction to an effort to take unilateral action uh, and uh, to introduce tax cuts without any way of funding it uh, and that the world reacted and said, look, if you go down that path, <laughs> you can forget about it. Uh, and uh, that's the kind of warning uh, that's been put to the British government over God knows how many years now, six years or whatever it is, uh, about Brexit. Well, I think what the British government tried to do in their budget now is really, it's, it's not just a warning to them, it's a warning to us all. I mean, we're lucky this year, thanks to the economy going well in Ireland, we're mm. not borrowing a single penny this year or next year. Um, and we're doing everything we, we are doing with taxation. And I think what it shows, though, is that no country, not even a big country like Britain, is completely closed off from the rest of the world. Mm. It's completely in control. That's the, that, I suppose that's the point I, I was making. Uh, yeah. do, you th- do you think that they've had a, a rude awakening and realised that Great Britain is, is not so great that it can go its own way uh, with the rest of the world objecting? I think that's the case for every country. And I think it's a lesson to us as well. Um, they said they certainly, no country with the possible exception of America could just close mm. itself off. And even America, I don't think, could. In other words, that mini budget has put manners on them. No, no. I, well, look, I'm, I'm not going to get into that kind of language. Uh, well, they're waking up and smelling the coffee, aren't they? And they realise uh, if they continue with uh, this thing with the protocol, they're going to be in even deeper water. Well, I think what they will realise... Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. What we realize as well is that, you know, that you are in a community. You are in, uh, you are an island. We are an island uh, that is against other countries besides other countries where we depend on other countries for trade. We depend on other countries for energy. Even Britain, which produces quite a lot of natural gas, is also dependent on the European market for natural gas. So those dependencies cannot be denied. And if we want to take action, if Britain wants to take action, uh, that has an impact. You know, for example, with the markets, if you want to borrow more, you yeah. can't complain about the markets because they're the people you're borrowing from. Yeah. Um, so, so we're all dependent on each other, and I think that look, I have no yeah. doubt that the British system sees that. Well, very, very clearly I, I, I think there's been a very strong aroma of coffee uh, across uh, the United Kingdom for years on end, uh, but in the last couple of weeks, uh, they've woken up and actually smelled it. Well, look, I think the same could apply to us as well, because I mean, you know, we're constantly as a government been told, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, and we say yes, we consider that, but you have to weigh things up, and you know, there are issues. You know, mm. everything in this world at the moment is complicated. Mm. I know you're Every being pragmatic. Decision. I know you're being pragmatic, Minister, and you don't want to say that they've realised how foolish they've been. I'm actually saying that all of us, and when the opposition, even in this country, come on looking for, oh, the government's not doing enough. Yes, we'd love, always love to do more. But I think every country, whether it's Ireland, whether it's Britain, France, is subject to constraints, mm. is subject to difficulties, is subject to complications, and is subject to dependencies outside of our jurisdiction. Okay, but the British government has made promises. The British government has made promises. Now, it won't surprise anybody, I think, uh, if uh, the British government breaks promises because they are notorious for breaking promises. But they're going to break promises if there's going to be a deal on the protocol and they are going to be forced to sell out the unionists, aren't they? Look, the, the the biggest promise that any uh, nation state can make is in a treaty um, that they sign with other nation states. And the UK has signed a treaty with the European Union. And I think we can see from the fact that talks are taking place around that treaty, the protocol, um, that they accept that it's there. And, and it's always been there. And to suggest that it's not there or could go away, it was always unrealistic. And I think we can see that now. And I think unionists will probably see that too. Like, I mean, there's, there's just simply no legal or realistic way of saying, well, we're not going to work with that uh, treaty anymore. Do you not think the unionists will feel very hurt at being sold out by their own government? I I hope from this process that we can get a situation that is a win-win for everybody. There cannot be losers in this process. Um, What we've done on the European Union side is listen to all communities in Northern Ireland, including unions. Mm. And the proposals that the uh, European Union put forward, now it's nearly a year since mm. Maricek, which put those proposals forward, and they're the basis of the talks now, are designed to allay the concerns that unionists have raised about the operation of the protocol. You don't think uh, that the unionist politicians are going to take seats in Stormont, do you, if Northern Ireland leaves the European Union in a, a way that's different to the rest of the United Kingdom? Well, they were always going to um, until... This protocol bill came up until the election. I mean, that, that was never an issue. Well, are they spoofers as well? I mean, obviously the British government have been spoofing throughout this, uh, uh, but the unionists have been saying that they won't take seats uh, on that basis. Do you think they're spoofing? Look, I think we've got to take the concerns of unions very seriously, and I do that. And I, I honestly believe that through this process of talks, uh, we can achieve a solution and solutions that everybody can buy into. Not everybody will be happy. 
nationalist population and the middle ground population in Northern Ireland are certainly not happy that Brexit happened, that mm. they were forced out of the European Union. And I'm sure unionists won't be happy with every aspect of whatever solution they hope is achieved. Well, happy or otherwise, uh, do, do you take them at their word when they said that they won't take seats in Stormont if Northern Ireland has to leave the European Union in a way that's different than the United Kingdom, the rest of the United Kingdom? I think even unionists would acknowledge that we should not have a hard border on the island of Ireland. So, so they've know, been spoofing go, then, have they? If, if, you, if anyone's suggesting that that there would be a full Brexit in Northern Ireland, that would lead to a hard border. Well, that's what the unionists have been saying. They say they want, to, they, they, they want the union to remain united, that there's no difference between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, and if there is, they won't take up their seats in Stormont. Uh, do you take them at their word? Well, I mean, of course I take people at their word, but what, I, what I'd be saying to unions is that you have an elected mandate to do this. Uh, you need to get in there to do the work that the people of Northern Ireland expect you to do. And Mm. quite frankly, uh, from the European Union side, the constitutional issues surrounding Northern Ireland are entirely a matter for the people of Northern Ireland. But you know know Uh, what their response thus far has been? No. Uh, You might have your opinion on on what our uh, duty is uh, to people who elected us, but no, we're not taking up our seats. Quite frankly, like if I'm in Newry or Lisburn or... Ashbourne. The issues are exactly the same. Yeah, of course they are. It's about the cost of living. Yeah. It's about healthcare. It's about mm. housing. Yeah. The housing crisis in Northern Ireland needs to be addressed as well. Yeah. Um, be, so that a, be that it is may, as it may, this, the answer remains no. We're not taking up our seats. That that that's been the position thus far. Well, I have to say that I am confident that through a process of negotiations, and we've done this before, that intractable solutions, intractable problems, can be solved. I have no doubt about that. Any negotiation that's successful involves wins for all sides, that people can come out of it feeling like they've won. And what I want is the unionist person sitting at home uh, in Northern Ireland, that they don't feel threatened in their identity as a British person uh, under this protocol. Mm. That they shouldn't feel it because that's not the objective of the protocol. The whole point of the protocol is to reinforce the Good Friday Agreement, which guarantees their British or indeed their Irish identity. Mm. Um, we've got to make sure that there's, that there's no reason for that. Now, that's what the European Union keeps saying. I think through the proposals that Seth Grich has put forward uh, last year in terms of reducing mm. the checks uh, into Northern Ireland, uh, that will go a long way towards that. However, the huge advantages of the protocol um, need to be constantly reminded of as well. Because, I mean, agriculture in Northern Ireland, and there's a lot of unionist people involved in agriculture in Northern Ireland, agriculture would basically, the market would collapse if the protocol wasn't there. Well, the, the, the politicians are willing to do that. They've said... <laughs> they, they, I don't believe that they are, ultimately. Uh, OK, they, well, they've, what, three weeks uh, before an election is going to be called? Do you think an election will be called? Look, that, let's just see what happens. And I think that we will know a lot more now in the next week to ten days how talks are progressing. Um, but unions need to know very, very clearly that there is no threat to their identity from the European Union. There is only opportunity for Northern Ireland um, in terms of the protocol, in terms of jobs and investment. Look, look at all the investment coming into the, the south at the moment. Huge amount of investment. A huge part of that is really successful uh, workforce, educated workforce, but also the fact that we're in the European single market for goods. Northern Ireland has that same advantage. But the fact that there's no government there at the moment is, is really putting Northern Ireland at a disadvantage. And I'm not convinced that politicians can continue uh, with that particular attitude uh, for very, very long. And we've got to make sure that we make sure that there are no reasons 
uh, that they could justify continuing. And I'm confident that through the process of negotiations that there will be no reason mm. well, uh, to justify politicians from not being involved in the government of Northern Ireland. We've been in difficult situations mm. in the North before uh, where governments weren't in place. They came back together. And I, I'm absolutely confident uh, the same uh, can be done in this particular context as well. Okay, Minister, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's the, the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, who's a Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Irish dancing, competition, fixing and cheating should be discussed uh, next week by the Oireachtas Arts and Culture Committee, according to Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Why do you want your committee to intervene in this scandal? Well, firstly, um, the Minister has already said that we'd the, neither the committee or the Department of Culture have any regulatory role uh, with this, but um, it's not clear what avenue we would take. But it's in it's in our interest to protect the reputation and integrity of Irish dancing, you know. And it's not too so late for that now, is it? So, well, I mean, this is what we need to find out. Uh, you know, I'd like the committee to discuss first whether or not we would bring the commission of Irish dancing in before us. Um, you know, there's things to be spoken about. You know, I know there's an mm. investigation underway, but. If those allegations prove to be true, then, then the system needs to be reformed. Well, some of the allegations are, are worse than others. Uh, I mean, mm. I'm reading uh, of Irish dancing teachers more or less prostituting themselves in order for their students to get medals. Uh, would you allow your children to participate in uh, one of those groups? God, no. I mean, if 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 this is proven to be true, I mean... It's a whole other level altogether, isn't it? I mean, it's, I don't know, words just spring to mind, sad, desperate, yeah. wholly inappropriate. You know, it's enough to render any sane person speechless, mm. if, if that's accurate, you know. But um, yeah, well, You can read all the text messages in the Daily yeah, Mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, well, you're just conscious that there's an investigation on, undergoing at the minute. But, um, I mean, if those allegations stack up, I mean, the system needs to be reformed and we need to have the committee or the commission in before us um, to see how they plan to reform that and what they intend to do with those, you know, if anyone is found guilty of that, you know, to see if they get reassurance that they'll be flushed out, that they'll be banned, to discover is it some kind of inner circle mm. within within the... the mm, it's not criminal, though. I mean, I mean, it's just rotten, but I don't think there's anything necessarily illegal about no, but it, is there? there? No, but there, there yeah. are very serious allegations and they're very alarming, you yeah. know, the nature of them. Like, and Look, it's like in any competitive sport, people should be able to expect transparency and fairness. And as I said yesterday, it's not fair on any child who attends a fesh and gives it their all and practising beforehand and you know, looking forward to uh, competing, mm. that they they wouldn't be given an equal or fair chance yeah. because the teacher and the judge have already um, discussed who's going to be getting mm. the medals or who's going to be getting the highest score. And on top of that, parents fork out a fortune. You know, it's 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 a global multi-million. Mm. Oh, no, uh, you like, you know, and yeah, yeah. and it seems yeah. like a, a lot of parents uh, and uh, aunties of children participating in, in these competitions are, are contacting the judges uh, as well as the teachers. Uh, I mean, I mean, it, this it's, isn't it's, this isn't it's, sport. This is this isn't no, fair. No. There, there's obviously a, a rotten culture in Irish dancing, and I don't know if anybody would be wise to associate with it. 
Well, it's it's going to do, you know, untold reputational damage, not just here in Ireland, but right across the, the world. You know, if you look at what goes... I, I, I don't think it is going to do. I think it's already done it. I mean, when I'm reading about women offering sexual favours to men in order that a, a child uh, wins a dancing competition, I just think, good luck. Oh, I, I just think there's something amiss there. Do you know what I mean? I think any parent or teacher... That would do that. There's but what sort of people? What sort of people are involved? I mean, in this, there yeah. has to be something uh, wrong with them. You know, yeah. I mean, any child, whether it's a teenager, or that imagine, you know, they they practice, they go to the fest, they give it their all. Yeah. Imagine if they would discover that either their teacher or their parent was involved in that to make mm. sure that they won a medal. I mean, it's sick. Yeah, it's There's a bit no like it's, it. it's a bit like the boxing clubs being infiltrated by the criminal gangs, isn't it? Well, it's just, I mean, who'd have ever thought, really? Now, I was reading reports saying it was an open secret for years, but it, it never came to the fore before. But it just it just, just takes everything away from it, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's you know, it's Irish dancing is a huge kind of part of Ireland's cultural heritage, and it, it just sullies it mm. to think that this sort of underhand... Um, Lack of transparency and and you know kids not being given it's a fraud. An equal and fair chance, yeah, yeah, and it would it would put people off, and particularly hmm. you know parents that genuinely that children that genuinely love Irish dance and love going to fashion, parents forking out a fortune for hmm. lessons, costumes, pumps, travel shoes, and even travelling to fashion at the length and breadth hmm. of the country. It just sullies the whole thing, you know, and it's supposed to be a cultural thing that we've always look hmm. at river dance and the success worldwide and. You know, it's a big part of our culture and heritage and for it to be sullied in this way mm. would be enough to sicken people, mm. you know. And that's why I think if the committee can do anything at all, but I think even just to discuss it at committee at first, first and see if we can invite uh, the, the commission in to see, you know, if these allegations stack up, how they propose to reform the system, how they propose to flush out Judges and teachers. Yeah. Are involved. I mean, they should be uh, As the minister said, as the minister said, it's not really any of your business. Well, it is. It is at the end of the day well, because. It, well, well, it's well, not. It's I mean, protecting it, Ireland's reputation it, when it comes to our cultural heritage is about our business. And if this sort of cheating is going on, but you said it's going on for years. Or, 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 no, I said I read an article that okay. was an open secret that it was going on for years. Yeah, but if it's going I mean, on for years, that is the culture of Irish dancing. It's a, a fraud. It's it's a, it's a cheat, and it's not it's not only that. It's dirty and it's underhand. I mean, you're talking about text messages here from fellas telling women to come to their room, from women telling fellas that they can have whatever they want. Nod, nod, wink, wink, and kisses and smileys uh, and uh, talk uh, about bribes uh, and all sorts of, of things. I mean... Uh, no, it's, it's warped. It's warped. It's totally I'm not warped. disagreeing with you. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I mean, it sullies everything about it. Mm. But, I mean, it's not going to stop, you know, the Irish dancing and the love of Irish dancing. It's an integral part of our culture. It's not going to stop. And if, if we can do anything to ensure that the whole system is reformed, that those judges and anyone found guilty of fesh fixing and, and, you know, cheating are flushed out and banned Mm. and named and shamed, actually, because who wants to send their child to a teacher that's involved in in fesh fixing? Well, loads of people by the the looks of it. Well, that speaks volume about that. But, I mean, imagine you being a child or a young teenager and finding out that your parent was involved, that you didn't actually win Mm. it from all your 
you're practicing and you're, you know, on your own merit. But even the other end of that is kids going to fetches and not being given an equal or fair chance because the, the competition has already been fixed. I mean, it's, it's, it's disgusting and it needs total overhaul and those responsible need to be turfed out and banned. It's as simple as that, like, but it's it's too big a thing yeah. worldwide. And know. there's a lot of people that there's a lot of people who agree with you, um, but uh, <laughs> I don't mean this in any way disrespectful. You're entitled to your opinion. And uh, the people who, the people who are involved in Irish dancing obviously don't agree with you because they're the ones who are guilty, as you put it, of all of this stuff. And that's the way they run it. Well, that's what I'm that's what I'm talking about. The system needs to be reformed. The whole system, if it's rotten from the inside out, and if there is an inner circle that's involved in this, that needs to be flushed out completely, and mm. they need to be banned, and then it needs to be known who's involved in it. You know that they mm. can't run for cover how, because what they've done. How do you is, do that, though? I mean, as you say, you've no regulatory authority. Um, nobody does really. Um, well, yeah, but the commission are the governing body. You know, and there's regional count, councils in every country, you know, in yeah. Ireland and right across as far as Australian... So you want the Oireachtas Committee to tell the Commission how to run... Um, no, but we're, we're saying if they're going to... I mean, obviously, if this has been going on under their nose, and if some within the, the, the Irish dancing circles are saying, reporting now that it was an open secret, we need to find out, you know, just how open was it? Were they aware of it? Or were they forced to act when they were sent screenshots? Um, in July that showed, you know, showed that this was happening um, and, you know, evidence to back it up. Is that why they acted or did they know in it before and did they turn a blind eye to it? But it's too big of a cultural and heritage thing for Ireland and our reputation not to have it totally reformed. You can't just stop dead and say Irish dancing's not going to happen anymore. Mm. As, as many of the ones involved in that cheating and, you mm. know, underhand uh, words even won't come to me to describe mm. it, but not every parent is involved in that. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. And there's those of a genuine love. Yeah, I'd say people are seething. You can't, yeah, 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 you, yeah, can't, yeah, you, can't yeah. you can't just ruin it, yeah. pull it away for, okay. from everybody. It's, it's too big of a cultural and heritage thing for us. Okay. And if you get the right people in place, it's like anything, you know, I mean, it has to be okay. overhauled and Okay, you, you, you asked right. for the committee to uh, hold hearings into this, but uh, I take it from what you said, that's not going to happen. Well, I'm going to ask, firstly, that we discuss it and then see what avenues are open to us. And look, I will push to see if, if they will agree to invite the commission in just to, to find out exactly, just to get the nuts and bolts of how long it's been going on, were they aware of it before they, they were sent... Um, screenshots of proof, you know, mm. um, that this was this was happening and how they intend to reform it, who was involved in it, what they intend to do with those, are they going to be banned, you know, was it just this inner circle thing, all of that. We need to know. Okay. We need to know. And and if they want to protect... Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, I think a lot of people... In, it'll speak for itself. I think a lot of people would like to know and would like to see it cleaned mm. up... Uh, We'll uh, watch that space, as they say, uh, and uh, follow uh, your actions. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on culture and arts, Imelda Munzer, who's uh, TD for Louth and Smith. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there's been a, a lot of uh, talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol, the constitution of uh, the two jurisdictions uh, on this island and uh, the prospect of a reunited Ireland uh, and indeed uh, how that may look. As you know, uh, a big meeting took place last weekend called Ireland's Future. There was a lot of people who had a lot to say about what a united Ireland might look like. Uh, but I, I think most of uh, the uh, people uh, who attended that meeting would have said that the highlight of it all was the actor James Nesbitt. So what was it he had to say uh, about a united Ireland? We'll hear some of it now. I do not promote one solution over the other, but I do consider that an informed debate based on clear evidence needs to happen. It needs to examine what health services, financial modelling, sport and so on would look like in various scenarios. Before I do that, I thought it would be useful to give you an insight into my background. Now, some of you will know me as a a shy, unassuming, (laughs) multi-award winning actor, but, uh, (laughs) but why am I here? Why does this discussion matter to me? Well, I am a Northern Ireland Protestant. I was born in a small village in County Antrim called Brashean. It was a very Protestant area and unionist, but my father who was the local primary school headmaster, sent my three sisters and me to St. Louis Convent in Ballymena to learn the piano. I think Dad was a bit of a torchbearer without realising it. And I think it was also about sending out a message, even then, that there could be integration. That said, in my youth, I played in a flute band, I marched, but I didn't really think anything of it. Brashean was by no means at the heart of the Troubles. It was very easy to grow up with the Troubles just up the road and feel distance from them. So I was brought up as a Protestant, but my key driver was to be an actor, and I was supported by this, uh, by my family. When I was 19, I moved to England. Now, I went very much as a Protestant, but the first day I went to drama school, there was an automatic assumption that I was pro-Republicanism. Not because anything I said or did, but because I was being considered Irish for the first time, in a sense. And that maybe made me begin to consider myself as Irish. I think for a lot of Protestants, particularly in my generation, when we went away, it was quite a shock that we were regarded as Irish by others, particularly the English, who don't really distinguish between North and South. Playing Ivan Cooper in Bloody Sunday was cathartic for me. It was maybe the first time that I examined the power of my job, and I examined the place I came from, its complex history, and the relationship between these islands. The truth about Bloody Sunday was not something I had been aware of. I think, to a certain degree, Protestants were taught history with a British perspective and Catholics were taught with an Irish perspective. But I suppose I grew to understand Northern Ireland better through my work in Northern Ireland. The director of Bloody Sunday, Paul Greengrass, always used to say that for any Irish actor from the North particularly, the troubles is a responsibility, meaning that at some point we must engage both artistically and personally. I began to realise what the power of my job could do, but also in a way why I love where I come from. It's about love and responsibility. One of the best love affairs I've had in my life has been with home. It's incredible in a place where there remains such division that actually people here are so united about loving where they come from. If we could just get hold of that, we could really go places. 
Harnessing this love of home is a key part of my ambition for change, and for that change to happen through a fully inclusive, non-sectarian conversation about the kind of society Northern Ireland wants to be, regardless of its constitutional status. This is uh, the actor James Nesbitt in a, a truly powerful speech about a united Ireland and how one might come about. We're ready to have this debate in the public domain, even if at times it seems our politicians are not. Now, in saying that, I'm not a politician. I'm not being critical. Politicians have a challenging role in any context, and I admire those who put themselves up for public office. But I believe, I firmly believe, that we need to bring this discussion out of the Dáil, out of Stormont, out of Whitehall, out of academic fora, and into the town halls, the village halls, the church halls, the orange halls. My, my point is, I think, that any change must be people-led, and solutions cannot be forced on those people. If we should have learned anything from history, we should have learned that. Solutions must emerge from a public discussion of the options for the future constitutional governance of the island and its relationships with our friends in the rest of the British Isles and in the European Union. I would also include in that discussion the Irish diaspora across the world, a debate I don't believe we've ever had. Politicians may point to political mandate, giving them the power and responsibility to lead. But people can only vote for what is in front of them on the ballot paper. I believe that it's time to ask wider society outside of the ballot box what way it wants to be governed. Having said that, uh, there will not be a united Ireland unless people vote for one. Now, a border poll may well be inevitable. But if it's going to happen, let it happen after an informed debate and not just when the numbers are right. This is my key point. The recent census outcomes are interesting and I know incredibly encouraging for most of you here, me too. But let's not see them as definitive. We're standing at a profound moment here in the history of the islands. And those graduates that I mentioned earlier, they were all about 21. And they are the very first generation who have the potential that no other generation has had. And that is to know a permanent peace and the potential to progress as a society without the constraints of the past. Although my work with Wave Trauma Centre as recently as this week convinces me that there are issues related to victims that still need to be addressed. I'm thinking particularly... I'm thinking particularly of the implications of the proposed legacy bill for many of the families of victims and, of course, of the families of the remaining disappeared. Anyway, that year. James Nesbitt. And now, of course, uh, the most profound uh, moment of all was in 1998 with uh, the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement promised that there was going to be a new future for these islands, that there were going to be new relationships built, new institutions. That has not happened. There are many who have found the frequent dormancy of Stormont just so unbearable, unpalatable, embarrassing, frankly and terrible to renege so heavily on what people voted for in 1998. As we've been discussing uh, this morning, uh, the question about uh, unionists taking their seats in Stormont uh, continues uh, to be an issue. This is uh, James Nesbitt, uh, part of his speech to the Ireland Future Conference last weekend. Improved and between North and South and between these islands. And it strikes me that I think a lot of more people around my way are coming round to the idea of just even considering themselves Irish. Of course, it's a great shame that Britain voted to leave Europe, the disaster of Brexit. 
At least there was a unification of sorts there because we were all part of a different European family. And I think that is what most people are now beginning to challenge, the divided nature of our society. And I think that's the key. I think the people have moved on hugely from where we were, but I'm not sure that politics has moved on as quickly. And I believe we have to offer people alternatives to orange and green. Now, my vision is not born out of politics or indeed politicians. It's stepping outside of politics. And maybe because some of us have a profile, not always that pleasant, we can carry a bit more weight, I don't know. But I do think that there's an appetite for people to actually celebrate the many different identities that there are on this island. It doesn't matter, you can call yourself Irish, British, Northern Irish, European. If you just want to be from Cork or Larne, that's okay too. I'm not comparing Cork and Larne, by the way. Jeez, no. <laughs> that must be finished in both. Um, it just feels that there's been a silent majority in this discussion for far too long. That voice needs to be heard. Let it emerge. Let this opportunity not slip. I will leave you with a traditional and what I hope is an appropriate Irish blessing. May you have the hindsight to know where you've been, the foresight to know where you are going, and the insight to know when you've gone too far. I hope I haven't. Gurumoya Agam. Thank you. The times, they are changing, are they? Yeah, well, perhaps so, uh, if uh, you... Listen to what was said there. That uh, is an actor from a Protestant background, James Nesbitt, speaking to the Ireland Future Conference last weekend. Michael Reed on LMFM. On Wednesday, it's believed a gang of men went to a funeral in Tralee armed with slash hooks, knives and machetes and attacked a married couple. Thomas Dooley died from his wounds. His wife, Siobhan, was hospitalised. I just want to extend my sympathies to the family of the victim following uh, the fatal stabbing at Rathas Cemetery in Kerry near Tralee. Um, as a deputy, you would appreciate there is a guard investigation now underway, so um, I'm confined in what I can say about it, but I would absolutely encourage anyone uh, who has any information to contact the guardie and bring the people who uh, carried out this terrible crime to justice. That's uh, Tanish Dilly O'Ratker in the doll. Yes, sir. let's speak uh, to Independent Senator Eileen Flynn. A very good morning to you, Senator. Thank you for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I'm sure you'd uh, encourage anyone and everyone to come forward with any information that they have as well. Oh yes, uh, Michael, and I also would send my uh, sympathy to the family as well uh, this morning. It was uh, such a tragedy, you know, mm. um, and I know I'm on your programme to speak in general and that around any uh, mm. specific um, uh, issue, you know, so I think that's really important that I'm uh, very clear on that. Okay, um, and uh, I suppose the issue is why people would go to a funeral so heavily armed. Uh, it's obviously not the first time uh, that we've heard of such stories. Can you explain that to us or do you understand it yourself at all? Uh, well, I, I know from all uh, walks of life, um, Michael, there's not good in all communities, you know, and some some some, some communities, as people would know, there's, a, there's a, a few bad apples that gives us all a bad name, really. But I see that in, in, in inner city Dublin, I see it in Valley Farm, it's in Dawkins, Crumlin, uh, etc. You know, so it's, if you want to say, it's nothing that I haven't seen, to, um, seen, seen before, but I will, like, obviously say that not every member of the Traveller community, just like not every member of the settled community are involved with uh, feuds or involved with fights. And we see it nearly every evening when we turn on our um, 
or uh, or news. You know, there's a, a feud somewhere in Ireland, and the majority of the time, it's members of the settled community. But it doesn't get the attention that one percent, less than one percent of the population gets. Yeah, I, I think there's probably a, a lot of truth in what you're saying, uh, but it, it really does. Uh, do an awful lot of damage uh, to the reputation of so many good, decent people who are members of the traveller community. Yeah, like if I just take two uh, young men who, uh, uh, Jason Sherlock, who's doing um, an apprenticeship in the Taoiseach's office, and then we had uh, James uh, Stokes, who was, um, who was doing two work, uh, two weeks' work experience in the uh, Cam Collier's office. And, you know, we never really speak about the positive stories that happen in the traveller community. Mm. And there's feuds, from my own experience, possibly that could be more uh, evident in working class areas. For me, living uh, in Bally Farm, I see it all of the time as well. But, you know, it's not always on the news and we don't always label every single sentence, uh, person as, uh, as, as bad people. And I would like to encourage, like this, say to your listeners, you know, remember the traveller community make up only 1% of the population. Like I know there's, like people in Loud wouldn't like to be labelled as everybody in Loud to be in a feud. You know, if, if something made it to the news or made it to the local uh, paper, that doesn't mean that every single person in that county is, is, is a bad person and nor should they get less opportunities because of what's going on in the community if it's nothing to do with them. Okay, um, you hear uh, and we've all seen uh, funerals take place and all the pubs in the town close. Is that wrong? Uh, I mean, you can understand why people do it uh, after what happened in, in Tralee and elsewhere. I mean, we've seen funerals uh, where people have come heavily armed like that and fights break out in pubs uh, and so on. Can you understand why publicans are afraid? No, actually, 100% I don't. And, like, they didn't just close pubs uh, just uh, after this uh, event, uh, Michael. We both know that they've been closing pubs for many years. Like, you know, I remember 22 years ago when my mother passed away, they closed the local pubs in uh, County Carlow. So it's not something that's uh, that's uh, that's new. And, and, and I will say it is obviously it's racism, it's discrimination, and I don't understand how... how, how how they do it when they don't do it when it's a settled uh, funeral in the area. Mm. You know? Yeah, they may do it though if it's a, a gangster's funeral and I think that's the perception. Right or wrong, Eileen? Uh, and people are... <laughs> like, you know, we don't label every single person in the settled community as, as, as your, in your words, as, as gangsters. Yeah, you know what I, I mean? know, I know. And it's the mm. same way for, for, for traveller people. Yeah. Like and I seem to be even like just specifically in County Carlow and say my my own family members would uh, pass away. You know mm. they do do it and it's very very hurtful because you're 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 very like it's a horrible time to bury somebody in your family. Of course, you know and, yeah. and not being able to uh, to be able to go into your local pub is. Um, is, is, is not nice and it's due and, it's, and the fact of discrimination and, and races, you know. But I will say, Michael, to even to uh, pub owners uh, this morning, I will say that the Traveller Free Legal Aid um, solicitors are really trying to address that issue. That it's like, you know, it's genuinely against the law. It shouldn't happen. And again, not every member of the community is, uh, is gangsters. And maybe I see it more than other politicians because I'm really in the real world. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I live with, with, with people in general from all walks of life. Mm, yeah, no, and I understand what you're saying um, and I agree with you. I think an awful lot of people listening agree with you or want to agree with you. And they 
accept and respect that the vast majority of members of the traveller community are decent, hard-working people. Uh, but they're also uh, aware that these things happen uh, and they seem to happen all too frequently at traveller funerals. And uh, whether that's right or, or wrong, that's the perception that people have. Uh, and because they perceive that to be the case, they're afraid. No, but Mike, my message is I see it happening all of the time at funerals in general, you know, and uh, like that's not the perception for all settled people. And again, I want your listeners to be very clear. I'm not condoning this behaviour, you know, but we also have to be, what, what, like, you know, when you go into the pub and you're speaking about how bad the travellers is, you're speaking about young men, you're speaking about young women who have less opportunities, and all you're doing is spreading that message around all travellers mm. are bad people without giving these young people opportunities to be successful, you know? And, yeah. like, if people were to judge, say, like, you know, we just won't leave travellers in our political, uh, um, uh, in any political doors. I wouldn't be here today. We won't have travellers going to our third level education. Uh, well, then, like, you wouldn't have the likes of Dr. Cindy Jice, uh, Dr. Hannah McGindley, experts within our community that's highly educated people, you know. And if I was to look at another man as a good role model, you have uh, Martin Collins, you have uh, Daisy Jice, mm. who, who's the balancer, you have Owen the Bardoon. Like, you've got great people. Yeah. Within our Absolutely. community, yeah. and too often we focus mm. on the negative. And again, and, 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 and I think your list is almost perfect. I'd like to add Eileen Flynn to it, independent senator. Uh, there's a lot of great people uh, that are inspirational for most of us. Uh, but uh, do all of us need to do something to root out this problem? Uh, that does exist in, in the traveller community, so that the reputation of travellers, all travellers, can be protected. We do have the mediation um, organisation that goes in and works with uh, families in uh, different uh, counties if there's any conflict there, you know. And uh, that that needs to be funded. It needs to be invested because it does do uh, uh, brilliant work. Um, you know, a lot of the time, Michael, I see it at a local level in Valley Farm, but I cannot speak on behalf of any member of the community. I'm just speaking on my own experience. In Library Park, there's very little or no services. If something was to happen on site, unfortunately, we're expected to police ourselves as travellers. Mm. And, 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 and that's not possible. Like, you know, if you had a, a small area in Loud where people were expected to police themselves, like we all know mm. intimidation happens, bullying mm. happens. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, think, I, I think there are some, some of the estates are like that, Eileen. I think that's uh, as un- and that's unfortunate. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's up and down the country, mm. but it's up yeah. to us to not start, like, put those people into boxes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. make those people's lives any worse. Like, even take Cherry Orchard, for an example. Mm. A few weeks ago, what yeah. happened in, in Cherry Orchard, obviously, I don't condone that kind of behaviour, but putting four young men in, 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 into jail, like, under the age of 18 years of age, they're not going to give them any more bright, brighter future by doing okay. that, you know, instead of working with the young people, you know. Okay, I've run out of time, but thank you very much indeed thanks, for Michael having that so conversation with us. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Independent Senator Eileen Flynn. That's it for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme Monday morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now Michael at LMFM.ie. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.